Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Amigo. Hola, Bobo. How are you doing? ¿Cómo está? Muy bien. ¿Y tú? Ah, más o menos bien. Hay dificultades, pero para vida, eh, no es malo. Yeah, and so there's difficulties, of course, that life is what it is, but in general, it's not so bad. It's a beautiful day out here in Oregon, and uh, just kind of running ragged. It's one of those days that I have so many errands that there's no space between them, um, which kind of gets up in my craw a bit. But generally, I'm good. Generally, I'm good, man. Yeah. You've been doing anything unusual you want to share? I went up and interviewed Ron Moorhead. That was really cool. Got to hang out with him for a whole day and into the evening. And then we went out. Uh, his son-in-law took it to a place. He's had squatch action. We went out there for a few nights. And Ron didn't say he hung out with us for a couple hours and then split. Then nothing happened the first time. The second night, we had a couple sound like – I wasn't sure if it was tweakers trying to come into camp to steal something. Because it was like 3.30 in the morning, and I started hearing walking around a little bit, like real softly. And, uh, and then a big, we were out in the woods, you know, and then this big truck goes driving by. There's uh, another guy parked about three miles up the road. We think he was a tweaker or something because a few different cars came by in the middle of the night. They'd go up there like up by where that guy was, be up there for like 10, 20 minutes and come back down. So we're, we're not sure what was going on there, but that guy was going by. I was like, ah. And then I started hearing the footsteps. And then when the truck came back, those footsteps, it never stopped anywhere near the, it didn't stop within a mile of us. And those, those, I heard like a scurrying going away when those, when the truck was coming. Then when it left, heard the padding come back in. Yeah. Just like, you know, just the typical here, like light walking around and that was about it. But it was cool just hearing that. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. You know, I did have some uh, weird uh, woods activity last week. Um, I was out at a long-term witnesses property that I work with pretty frequently. And um, and I was going to the back of the property to uh, change out the camera. We have, a, we have a camera back there. We also have a, a long-duration recorder on this person's property. Um, so we, we, I was walking back there, and it's a long, skinny property, you know, um, probably about a quarter mile or more walk from the house maybe a third of a mile to the very, very back of the property where all the technology is. And on the way back, I, I, I stopped dead in my tracks because I was alone. And um, over, over to the right, there was a pop, 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 like a, a light running sound, kind of like what you're describing, but running. Um, so I stopped there. And then to my left, there was big crashing through the woods, like crash, 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 snap, snap, snap. And then so I, that, that kind of paused me for five minutes while I just you know stood quietly, basically. Um, then I, when I finally made my way to the back of the property where the technology was and I needed to change the batteries and the cards and all that jazz, I did hear a similar big crashing down in the ravine. 
So, I mean, I don't know. It could have been bears, could have been all sorts of stuff, uh, but it definitely could have been a Sasquatch. I mean, they are known to be on the property sometimes. Um, he's seen them on the property a couple times, actually. Uh, but yeah, don't know. But it's always nice to get your adrenaline running when you're alone and face to face with something large and unseen in the woods. It's a, it kind of makes you feel alive for a few moments. You know, it's funny that you're, you're telling that story. I'm like, yeah, it sounds kind of squatchy. Mainly in my mind, I was thinking this, how much I hate those long, skinny properties. They're like 20 acres, but it's like 200 feet wide and like half mile long. Yeah, that's pretty much what this one is. Yeah. Yeah, I hate those because like, if you build on it, you're, you can build. Your neighbor can build right next to you, like like you're in a town. Basically, you got 20 acres, but it's not really usable at all. Right, right. Well, it's kind of like my property. I've got 23 and a half, and it's not usable for anything. So we keep it wild. Uh, but it is long and skinny, which is cool because uh, you know my neighbors aren't aren't are on either side of the of the long skinny. So my nearest neighbor is at least a quarter mile or so away, which is kind of nice. Yours is that skinny. Like I'm talking like. Those ones that are like 20 acres but only 200 feet wide. That are, uh, anyway, anyways, I'm getting sidetracked. Yeah, don't don't get mad about people's property, Bob. This is the time <laughs> and place for it. <laughs> I agree, I agree. Yeah, because we have a great guest today. You want, you want to tell us about who we have on? He's a friend of both of ours, but hit it, Bob's. Got Joe Purdue from West Virginia. He's a great researcher, one of those kind of unsung, kind of more underground. And he, a lot of people know who he is, but he's not like a household name. But I've always been really impressed with how thorough he is, how, you know, he's a smart guy, he's level-headed, but he likes, uh, you know, we're Bigfoot and Beyond. He's definitely Bigfoot, but he goes into the Beyond as well. So uh, welcome to Joe Purdue. Hey, Joe, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and the Bobes. What's going on, guys? It's uh, It was weird sitting here listening to this because, you know, it's Monday and I'm used to listening to you guys on Monday for a second there. I forgot I was actually on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing happens with me. Sometimes I forget I'm actually speaking and I think I'm listening. Right. So how, how have you guys been? Good. Yeah, life's good. Life is life. You know, we're not dead yet. So that's a good sign. Right on. As long as I'm on this side of the dirt, it's a good day, right? As long as I'm wiping my own butt, it's a good day. <laughs> well, we all have our uh, the standards that we try to rise to, Bobo. So I appreciate yours. Got to keep them high. <laughs> So, Joe, people uh, may not know you, um, but I don't know. I mean, you've been on a Finding Bigfoot episode. You were actually on that uh, reboot that we did back in 2020 where we got the band back together for a moment. You were uh, the the gentleman who um, cast a footprint along those vernal pools and all that sort of stuff. So they may know you, but not really know you. But for those who have no idea, um, who are you? Like, uh, how did you get into this and all that sort of stuff? You corroborate with uh, Dr. Russ Jones, who's been a guest on our show, I think, twice now. Yeah, um, he he's a good friend of mine. He actually just lives right down the road from me, and uh, we've worked a few reports together. And I helped to contribute to uh, his latest book, Appalachian Bigfoot. The we contributed the obviously the cast pictures and some of the details about those findings. But uh, if anybody who owns the book, there's about three or four pages of wild edibles that were documented in the book. And uh, I, I'm the guy that went out and sniffed them all out off the ground and found them and uh, and made sure that they were all okay. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're a master naturalist just like Russ is, right? Yeah, I'm actually part of the master naturalist program. And um, and I teach a lot of the programs too there about, well, not a lot, about three or four a year I'm out there teaching. Um, and, and then I'll go uh, teach through the master naturalist program. I'll be going and doing educational classes to the general public and stuff several times a year. And what kind of training do you have to go through to get a uh, certificate or acknowledgement or, you know, the badge that says that you're a nat- master naturalist? 
Well, uh, it is about a two-year-long program where you meet uh, just about, except for in the inclement weather uh, months. So like, you know, January through, uh, you know, normally our first classes start in the middle of March. Those months, there's nothing really going on except for like some, uh, you know, public outreach kind of things. But the rest of the year, about every Friday evening, you have a lab that you go to and you will uh, take courses from other master naturalists and professors at universities that are uh, specialists in their field, like herpetology, um, microbiology, uh, botanists, etc. And you'll sit and learn from those folks. And then the following day, you'll actually do the field research side of the class. So is it weekends you do this, like over a weekend? Yeah, it, it's a weekend. It's uh, it's a couple weekends every month that we would do it. And it takes two years to get through the program. That's if you go to every single class. Um, you know, some folks, it can take a little bit longer. Uh, but I, I wanted to get it knocked out and stay consistent with it as much as I could. So I, I got mine knocked out in two years. And uh, now I've been teaching classes with the Master Nationalist Group for about another two years. So more of a naturalist program. So it doesn't really go into bushcraft or anything like that. More of a plant ID and edibles and tracking and weather and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, correct. Now, there are a couple electives uh, that are bushcraft electives, but they're not core classes. Um, the The actual classes are all very, very much naturalist based in, in the in the finest sense of the word. You know, we're we're studying um, the old. Uh, you know, they, Walden Thoreau and and whatnot, going through their methodologies as, uh, as well as more modern naturalists and um, and and studying in depth up close all of the fauna that surrounds us and and understanding its place in in the food chain as well as understanding its place in in the grand scheme of the ecology of the forest. So it sounds like you're ready to bump it up from a master naturalist to a supernaturalist. <laughs> yeah, you know, from time to time, we'll get into some of that stuff just goofing around. I'll bring something up. We'll hear something weird when we're out in the woods and we'll, everybody looks at me and I'm like, what? What? You guys act like, you know, I'm the guy that goes around looking for Bigfoot or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's a good time and it, it, it's great for outreach. Do you get reports in class from students? This, is there any students coming there going like, I've had my own encounters or tracks or anything like that? I have collected six reports over the last two years from the master naturalist classes. Yeah. So that's, that's been really, really fun because these folks, normally the, the folks who are attending these courses, you know, they're, they're kind of, we're trained observers, you know? Um, so I take their accounts and their reports a little bit more seriously than I would just running into somebody out at, you know, uh, Taco Bell and them giving me a report there. Yeah. See, I've been soliciting reports from Taco Bell, you know, maybe that's my problem. <laughs> like they, they, I'm right past the drive through when they pick up their chimichangas, I roll by and go, any Sasquatch reports? And they kind of look at me and they speed off. There you go. My, my local Taco Bell, no joke. Uh, th this happened two nights ago. Uh, we, I went through the, um, and I just had finished a, uh, a Bigfoot class that we had taught for a, uh, a local little local library show here. And, um, I went through and our local Taco Bell actually knows me as the Bigfoot guy. <laughs> and so it, it pays off. I mean, I got free cinnamon twists, so. No, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> so how long have you been doing the Bigfoot thing? Uh, well, active field research probably has been around 
four or five years, but I've been interested in the phenomena since 2001, like heavily interested because I had my own encounter at that point. Okay. Did you see one or did you hear one? I guess we're, tell us about what, tell us about that event that changed your life. All right. I'll give you the Campbell's condensed version of it because it, it, we could, uh, we could probably sit and talk about that for a long time, but I want to get into some, some other good stuff that's less interesting or less about good me. stuff. Like this isn't <laughs> going to be good. Huh? You're just telling us now. But. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, 2001 it's, uh, it was September 9th, 2001. And, um, I remember it because it was the weekend after uh, Labor Day, and I was going out to one of my favorite hunting spots, and it was, uh, as the crow flies, about four and a half, five miles from where we were um, up on the ridge at Canal State Forest. So I was I was going out to my little spot, and it was an area that had been timbered, um, and here in West Virginia, they timber a lot, the like they do in the Pacific Northwest where you guys are. So it's, they'll do a quarter of the mountain and then they'll leave it for a while. And then they'll come back and do the, another quarter of the mountain. It's all to prevent landslides and such. So the area that was straight behind uh, my house had been timbered. Um, so I was up, up the mountain, down the mountain, and the next mountain over, that portion is where, where the timbering had took place. So it had been cleared off. Enough years had gone by that some berries and uh, a lot of a lot of just native wild foods were available, so it made for a great hunting spot. Deer were coming in because uh, berries and such are are a very valuable and rare source of sugar um, that's that's not available at a large scale out out in the wild. You're not gonna outside of berries and fruits, you're not gonna find a whole lot of just natural sugars. So these these little locations like that make a great area for for hunting because it brings in prey animals. So I was going into my spot and I saw this black mass is what I saw first. And I, I got excited because I thought I was seeing a black bear. I was like, oh, I'm going to get down in the laurels. I'm going to watch this black bear. That'll be cool. And I realized real quick that it wasn't a black bear and that there were more than one of them. And the first one that I saw was around four and a half, five feet tall. And it was playing like like a kid, um, you know, having toddler my, myself now. And watching him run around the living room and and be feral, I I can look back at this and say this thing was young and it was playing. It was out in an open area, but still in the forest, and it was able to behave in a way that was um, might not necessarily be able to the rest of the time, just because of the confined spaces of the trees and whatnot. How big did it look? Like I said, it was about four and a half, five feet, and it was actually kind of slender. It it wasn't very stalky. Like I said, reminded me of a kid almost. Uh, like if you look at an average, you know, somewhere between five to six year old kid, that kind of that kind of build, like gangly and skinny and growing. Um, and it was running around and like doing these kind of like not full cartwheels, but it would go down, put its hands on the ground, and kick its feet out, and was was playing around. And I, that one had my full focus because I was just so enamored with what I was seeing because that was just breaking my my current worldview. Um, why am I seeing this this creature? And, and just to be clear here, um, uh, you had an unobstructed view of this, right? And and what distance were we talking about here? Uh, well, the the distance I'll, I'll get in the distance once once we wrap it up because I I went back to the area a year later because I couldn't get my uh, the nerve to go back that year, and I actually paced it out. 
Um, so I'll give you the estimated distances here at the end of it. Um, but it was a, a fairly unobstructed view. I was down in a big thicket of mountain laurels. And so I was watching through that lens, you know, um, uh, it, it was, it was a, a natural hunting blind that I'd, I'd used for years. And it was just a huge area of overgrown, uh, rhododendron that I was just hunkered down in. I noticed another large one up closer to the tree line uh, where the timber cut had stopped and it was setting down like on its haunches and it was smacking a tree and raking across the tree. Um, that was the largest one. And then there was a third one. Well, raking his fingers or what, what do you mean raking across the tree? Uh, it, it would raise its arm up and hit this old rotten log. And it would rake it like uh, like scraping for ripping bark apart. Okay, and the um, the log was laying down on the ground. Yes, the log was laying. It was an old deadfall that the timber company had left behind. Okay, was it making a noise? Like it wasn't doing a tree knock or something. It was just no. It wasn't making. A, it wasn't doing a tree knock. Um, it the I don't remember a noise. Being perfectly honest, but it was like a just if there was a noise, it's just going to be a wet thump because it was a, a just an old rotted log. They. They're not going to be very loud when it's a big rotted mass. You're, it's going to absorb a lot of that sound, but you will have a light smack. But I, I was probably too far to really be able to hear it. The next one down, which was probably roughly 60 feet from it and a little closer to me, was uh, what I'm assuming, this is based off going back out there again, uh, this one was around six feet tall, six feet, six and a half feet tall. Um, and it was just forging on the ground. It was actually digging in the ground and, um, like looking for, uh, roots. And, and I know exactly what it was looking for because I may or may not have put it there. <laughs> so I had planted some uh, potatoes and such over there to, to kind of just provide a little bit of extra sugar and starch into, uh, a diet that I could, you know, harvest something from in the future. And, um, cause this, this was private land. I'm, I'm allowed to do that. So, uh, it, it wasn't like a bait trap or anything. It was just, we, I put them out there just to see if it'd work and it brought something else in that wasn't the deer I was after. So that, that was the third one. There were three of them there. Yes. That was the third one. You're right. This, this is a terribly boring setting. Yeah. This sucks, man. Can't you get onto the point? Like what? So, so what you saw, what do you mean? This, yeah, you set it up like this isn't a good story. You saw three of them doing really interesting behavior, foraging, playing juvenile. It's like, what, I, I can't wait till you tell us a, yeah. What, what do you, what do you wait? Like, I can't tell, I can't wait till you tell us a quote unquote good story. I've told the story so many times that to me, I'm just kind of like, I, I'm, you know, here it is. This is, this is the data. I'm not going to try to convince anybody about what it was. It just, this is, here's what I saw kind of thing. And, you know, they were doing natural, normal stuff. And so, so anyway, the, in the scope of the sighting, I'm, I'm sitting there like I'm frozen and I'm watching this stuff going, I'm still, I'm still observing mostly the small ones because it's, it's behavior and what it's doing and it's moving. Are you hunkered down? You're blind at this point or are you just, Oh yeah, I'm down. I'm, I'm sitting on the ground. They showed up when you were already set up? No, they were already there, and I came in on them. And the wind was blowing in my favor whenever I came into the laurels. And the wind shifted, and probably about 15, 20 seconds after the and it might even not have been that long. It could have been a shorter window of time. Um, just a few seconds after the wind had shifted, the biggest one that was standing up near the timberline, it stood up and 
I saw a full back profile and it turned its head just, just enough to where I could see the side quarter of like where the ear and the jaw would be. And it, it, I didn't hear anything, but I assumed that it made some kind of inaudible noise to me. And, um, the other two immediately stopped what they were doing, made a beeline straight to the big one. And once the two others caught up to the large one, they just walked off into the forest. And I sat there until I could not see them anymore. And once they were out of my line of view, I turned around and went back home immediately. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. How long of a time period are we talking about here since uh, when they came out and you first saw one to when they left? How much time had elapsed? They were out whenever I came in. So they didn't come out of the forest. Okay, right, right. You just said that, right. Well, how long did the observation last? At most, 45 seconds. 45 seconds. It was under a minute, but it felt like an hour. Um, but I was just, I, I was sitting there and I was forgetting to, I remember that I was forgetting to breathe because there was, I had to remind myself to breathe at one point, um, because what I was seeing. And, uh, then, then once the, the encounter was over, I had no problem breathing because I was almost in a dead sprint back to my four wheeler up at the ridge. Cause I'd parked my four wheeler just on the other side of the ridge because I didn't want the noise of the four wheeler to carry over the the ridge line and down into the next valley in case there was something there. So I parked below the ridge line and then walked it up and over. And, uh, so I, I made it back to my four wheeler and, and, uh, went back home and I couldn't muster to get back out there until, um, the following year. And I, I didn't go back out until all the leaves were off the trees and there was snow on the ground that the time that I went out, um, so I wanted to go out when there was no leaves on the tree simply because I wanted to be able to see if something was coming my way. Uh, I, I didn't want any kind of obstructed view because I, I was honestly, I was really freaked out by the encounter. And this was a area that I was in all of the time and had never had any kind of weird stuff happen and never seen anything, um, that was out of the ordinary. And then this happened and I didn't go back out there for a while. Um, so I went back out. And where I get my height estimations is there was a stump that was near the big one. Uh, and when they stood up, when he, that one stood up and walked past it, um, I used that as a, as a gauge because I remember when it walked by, that stump was below its knee. And I don't know how far below the knee, but I know that it was below, that stump was below its knee. And when I went out to that area um, and walked out, the space between where I was at to where, uh, the farthest one from me was, it was about, it was, it was right in that 60 to 65 yard marker. 
And so I was, I was really, really close, all things considered. This creature, when it walked by that stump that was below its knee, that same stump was above my knee by about two, two and a half, three inches. So I'm assuming the biggest one that I saw was somewhere in the seven and a half foot mark for height. The other one was closer to my size uh, as far as height goes. It was beefier and big, like larger mass than me, but I'm six foot three. And uh, when it walked through the stump area, my, my recollection is that its knee was also below that stump. And so, yeah, that's, that's the, the distance and the clarity were, were close and the clarity was really, really good on the sighting. Um, so from that point forward, I was convinced that there are Sasquatch here and that they are, they're alive and clearly well, because there was, there was more than one size of them. And I saw a, a juvenile and that, uh, it was worth really looking into. So I spent a lot of my free time, um, back on the, you remember the old angel fire, uh, forums? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right after my sighting took place, I, I got on and I was digging through those and I was seeing all these, um, I guess, consistencies. And uh, I had Bigfoot fever there for a little bit at that point. <laughs> and But at that time, it was really kind of unacceptable to talk about this kind of stuff. You know, today it seems like things have opened up more um, and people are more open with sharing their encounter stories. And there's less public ridicule when you when you share a story. Um, so I wasn't very big on sharing those stories, especially with my job. Uh, you know, I went into the military two years after that and, um, I was not going to share that story there. Uh, then beyond there, it was just one of those, one of the things that I, it was so far behind me at that point. Um, I'd kind of lost interest in the Bigfoot phenomena because I'd had my experience. I knew something was there. I, I, I didn't need any further proof of anything. Did you say, did you say you said it was September 9th, 2001? Yeah. So two days later, it was 9-11. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, that would, that would kind of be the topic of conversation, replacing the Bigfoot setting, I guess. Right, yeah, that just didn't seem uh, the right time, I guess, to really tell anybody. I told my neighbor, who was, um, who's, we were in school together, and I told him about it the day it happened. And we never really talked much about it after that. He wasn't really big into Bigfoot. He was just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, man. I hear you. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that, that was where uh, about six miles from where we had you guys out on the ridge there for finding Bigfoot as well. Um, and I remember when we were standing there all together talking, uh, I, I even said to you guys, you know, this is probably just far-fetched, but to me, it feels like a, a really cool possibility, just a cool possibility that the tracks that we cast there in Kanoa, uh, at the Salamander site could have been that young one that I had seen all those years ago, or at least been related to it because we're that close and, and to be able to have evidence that supported my sighting that close to where I lived, it just, it was just really, really cool. And 20 years isn't outside the scope of uh, one of these things lifespan in any stretch of the imagination. They probably live 50 years or something like that, give or take a little. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, six miles is nothing, nothing. And well within uh, what that is slowly coming into focus as far as their range goes, in my opinion. So 
could very well be the case. Maybe even the smaller one, you know, who knows? Like not, not the baby one, but the other one too, the medium sized one, you know? It very well could be. I mean, it's a fun possibility to kind of play with in your mind. It's, it's, there's no way we'd ever be able to prove it, but it, it's just really, it's a neat, uh, neat thing to think about. And so getting into it to, as far as a research perspective goes, um, we had started, uh, my business partner and I had started a, a business called Wild and Weird West Virginia. And we started making Bigfoot paranormal alien art and, and going to shows and selling it because we wanted to get equipment so we could go out and actually really start investigating some of this stuff um, on our free time. And while we were out selling the stuff, people were coming up, see the art, they'd see the stuff we were making. They'd be like, wow, this stuff's, you know, it's really good. And you guys have seen something, haven't you? And my business partner, he's a UFO guy. He's been researching UFOs and the paranormal for about 30 years. So he, he'd been doing it for a very, very long time uh, prior to, you know, linking up with me. And so he would, he would start talking to these people and we start collecting reports right there at the table. Um, and, it got to the point one day where we actually had a report that was right near the location we were at because uh, we were kind of close to home. Somebody told us about it. We went out. We did some investigating and poking around. We did find some evidence of uh, you know possible Bigfoot activity in that area. Um, and it's just grown from there over the years. So it's uh, it's been kind of like a, a, a passion project, going out and, and working with people and um, doing Bigfoot research. I, I got a job in the forest. Um, I did that for a little over a year. Um, I just recently left it, but I was actually working in the forest and I was out there all the time and they knew what I was doing. Um, they knew why I wanted the job. <laughs> when you say forest, you're talking about Canal State Forest. Yeah, yeah. I was I was working at Canal State Forest. Um, and and so they, they knew why I wanted the job. They knew what I was up to and uh, they they entertained it and and I worked there as the naturalist for the forest and so I taught all these classes but I was also given gate keys into places where you can't drive vehicles that I was now allowed to drive vehicles into uh, you know uh, just basically unprecedented access to a, a research area that was um, fairly protected. Now, as far as the higher ups in, in in that organization, you know, state forest sort of management stuff, the higher ups, even if they did know what you were interested in, like you, Sasquatch was an interest of yours, um, they know you as a personal uh, person on a personal level. They know you as a man, and just like, okay, well, he's not nuts, he's not stupid. Um, did, did you get any pushback necessarily, or is it just one of those things like, well, I don't know, maybe they're there, maybe they're not, or, or was it like, yeah, we know they're there or now this guy's an idiot, but he does good work. So we're going to keep him on the payroll. <laughs> I think it was probably a little bit of a combination. Um, there was a couple guys that definitely were definitely were like, yeah, this guy's crazy. We're just going to keep him on the payroll because he's really good at what he does. Um, cause I, I also built the nature center and, and, uh, Put exhibits in it and whatnot, and I'd done that for other state parks in the past. So that's where I'd kind of had a relationship with state parks already. Um, and they, the only ground rule that was placed on it because they knew what I was doing uh, was that they didn't want me to initiate the Bigfoot conversation. That was the only restriction. Just don't you don't initiate it. If somebody else brings it up, you can talk about it for hours if you want. But they wanted the guest to bring it up, and. Uh, 
it worked out pretty well because after uh, the Finding Bigfoot episode had aired, a lot of people came to the park looking for the Bigfoot guy. So I got to take a lot of reports while we were there. Um, several of the reports were right there from the park from different dates uh, and different years. And uh, then working with Matt, you know, uh, he gave me access to the BFRO database there. And um, there was actually a BFRO report two, three miles from, from where I had my sighting just down the road. And I was able to uh, link link some of the other sightings in the area. What, what do they do with the reports you took? Did they log them in with like bear reports or mountain lion reports? What, what, is there a special category? Oh, oh, yeah. Th- that they did not. The the forest itself did not care. Like uh, when when they would come and give a Bigfoot report to me, they're like, "Yeah, just uh, you you take that and do what you want with it." So it wasn't like a formal report to uh, to the park. They were just coming and giving a report to me. The park had no interest in it. They they didn't mind the traffic that it was bringing in because um, it was it did bring a lot of people in to come in and look and hike around and see some see some of the places and we'd have people come and ask me where certain sightings took place and so i'd be like yeah sure come on i'll, I'll take you to them and uh, i'd take them to the one that we did the um, episode on there because it it's easy to get to it's right there near the road and, uh, i could take them there and talk to them about it and explain the um why it was likely there um and go through the whole you use the whole naturalist thing to explain why there was a bigfoot here um, so I was kind of doing my job, but also doing my, my other job at the same time. <laughs> so it, it, it worked out really well. Uh, and, and I had a really good time with it while it lasted. And, uh, it, it's one of the deals where as politics change, um, within certain organizations, uh, it, it becomes, a, a not healthy environment to remain in. And so I'd, I'd wound up leaving the forest, and, um, I, I'm still doing work with the DNR. Uh, I'll still go teach courses and classes and do guided hikes and stuff, but it's not like a, a day to day on the payroll situation there anymore. Well, jobs are jobs and people come and go, right? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Let's talk about the um, the sighting that you uh, described to us and the evidence that you retrieved for the Finding Bigfoot episode. But before you hop into the Bigfoot side of thing, I'm always kind of curious when we interview people who have uh, gone through the grueling process of, pro- of making television. What was that process like uh, compared to maybe what you expected? Making television has often been co- the you know compared to making sausage. Everybody loves the finished product. Nobody wants to see how it is made. Uh, for good reason. So after having gone through that, what what's your uh, takeaway from all that stuff? Well, for me, it was a much better experience than my previous TV work, um, because I'm also a classically trained chef. That was that was my gig for a long time. I had a uh, got a degree in culinary science, um, food science, basically, and uh, was a classically trained chef, uh, certified executive chef, all that good stuff. And I had done some some work with some food TV shows, um, 
and those were very unpleasant. Well, you know, we should have had Bobo's the Gordon Ramsay of Bigfoot. I mean, we could have just had him scream at you and belittle you the entire time. Right. And Gordon Ramsay's actually such a great guy. Actually, I've heard that. He's he's not the TV face at all. He's supposed, supposedly a sweetheart. But, yeah. <laughs> but it would have probably been more accurate to the previous TV experience. Uh, so working with with Chad and everybody it was just such a breath of fresh air as opposed to other TV crews I'd been with. Um, and and so that was nice. But, you know, it it was one of those things where there was a lot of stuff that we experienced, a lot of stuff that we had heard uh, that, that didn't make the final cut. And, and you've addressed that as well on previous episodes with different people who were involved with that show. Um, and, you know, it, it was overall, though, it was such a fun experience. You know, I never in a million years uh, would have imagined that I would have been able to go out and, and go bigfooting with either of you two. You know, I, I'd met you guys at conferences. It was one of those things where, like, I go the very first time I met you guys, I was kind of fanboying out. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, these guys are, like, the, the best Bigfoot researchers ever. Oh, oh God, <laughs> you know? And and then hanging out with you guys there, I was just, I, I was, it was set. I was like, this is the best thing ever. Um, so being able to hang out with everybody and go squashing with you guys and the experience we had out in the forest, um, the evidence that, that was collected that didn't make TV, uh, all that good stuff, you know, it, it was just, it, it was a great time. I, I really loved it. There was minimal production to it, if that makes sense. Like, obviously you're there making a TV show, but they were really just kind of in the moment, you know? It it wasn't this, uh, it wasn't as much of a production as what I had anticipated it to be. And it was more like, here we are, we're filming you guys going Bigfoot and, and that's it. Like, you know, it was it was really cool. Yeah, well, we trained them to be like that. At some point, they finally realized that we're weird enough personalities that if they just follow us around at the camera, they're going to get good TV. Right? And and it works. Even if they tone the weirdness way down. They do. They do. That's what editors are for, though. But you know, God, I mean, several of our personalities can sunburn a person psychically if they, uh, you know, if they did, they edit us. It can, but uh, it, overall, like I said, fantastic experience. I, I do it again 10 times over. Well, very good, very good. We always like to hear about that. Um, so yeah, now, but on, on the show, you you talked about running into one of these things, and you got physical evidence out of it, and the whole nine, man. Um, it was such an intriguing story. Uh, can, why don't you tell our listeners about that? All right. So uh, the Salamander site was originally an encounter that took place um, in it was April of 2020, and the world is in pandemonium shutdowns everywhere everything's closed uh state parks oddly enough had closed signs on everything but the state parks were actually open and the general public did not know that so you could go into the state parks and essentially depending on the day of the week you it was you and some other forest nerd that was out there all by yourself and um john had gone out there and he was, uh, he's an amateur herpetologist. He actually runs the West Virginia Herpetology Society and uh, does their state conference and everything. And he was conducting a salamander survey. And for the listeners, what that means is he was going out and cataloging the various species, um, their age ranges, uh, whether they were mating or eating, like if they were coming down from certain areas to, uh, to hunt 
or if they were in the region to uh, mate, or if they were in that area to lay their eggs, because different salamander species will do things at different times of the year. Um, But generally, as soon as your temperatures go up above 45 degrees, your amphibians and, and such just start coming unhinged and they've got to get out. They got to get out of their, their brumation. They got to get moving. They want to get life on the way again. So, uh, he was, he was doing this survey. He had gotten out of his vehicle. Uh, he'd done he already hit one vernal pool and had some moderate success, but he, he wasn't finding the key species that he was looking for, for that time of year. So he moved up, uh, probably about three or four miles deeper into the forest to go find a, uh, a vernal pool that was generally always a knockout. Um, in years past, he'd always had great luck with it to find uh, the specific species of salamander. However, he found something that he didn't bargain for. Um, when he got out of his vehicle, he had initially found a toad. And so he got down, he took a picture of the toad. And as he began to advance on the vernal pool, he uh, he heard this something rustle through the, the leaves. Um, and, and move through the leaf litter and a grunt. And so he stopped where he was at and then he heard this thing yell. And when it yelled at him, he, he nearly voided his bowels (laughs) and he ran into his, ran back to his car, which was only about 10 feet away. And, uh, he had another witness there with him who heard and corroborated the entire story. And, uh, when he got back in the vehicle and shut the door, it yelled one more time, and that second yell, he said, rattled the windows in the car. And you guys were buddies already, right? Like he wasn't like some stranger telling you this. Was no, yeah, yeah. He's actually we're we're good friends. Um, another thing that we do, uh, Ron and I, that the where our business minglings first began was uh, Ron and I actually breed reptiles uh, professionally, and we we sell those all over the world, and. Um, so John knew us from that, and he also knew that we were weird. So he he got a hold of us, and um, he he first sent me a message, and he said, "Hey, I, I need you to I need to tell you what I just experienced, and I need you to tell me that it's not Bigfoot." So immediately, based off that message, I'm like, "Tell me more," <laughs> you know, and uh, I started listening to his. Uh, report and he, cause I had him on the phone and he, he gave it all to me. And I was like, man, I would love to tell you that you, um, you didn't have a bizarre experience and that this was just like some kind of regular old run of the mill wild animal you just encountered. But I do think that you just had a Bigfoot encounter. And I said, uh, the next thing is I need to know exactly where it happened because it has been raining for three or four days and I want to get there as soon as possible. So, uh, he got back with me the next day cause he, he kind of sat on it for a second and, uh, it got, it was the very next morning. Cause this, this all took place. Uh, you know, when you're going out looking for salamanders, you're doing it at three in the morning and, I was awake whenever he got a hold of me and I had him call me because at that time I had a three month old. So he was awake. So we were all awake, you know? And, uh, I I had John call me and then he got with me the very next day. I got the exact location and, um, I went out there and while I was on site, uh, started seeing immediate evidence. As soon as I opened up the truck door, uh, I saw these two feet prints, like they're perfect footprints 
right on the uh, the edge of this vernal pool. Now they were full of water, and at the time I didn't know how to cast in in a pool of water. Thankfully, thanks to Cliff, I now know how to cast in a pool of water. You know, uh, so I won't have that mistake happen again. But uh, I, I didn't collect those tracks. So as I was making my way around the vernal pool and going to this area, I was noticing that there was a ton of, of leaves that had been turned over. And what you're looking for in a tracking situation is the, the wet or dark side of the leaves. If they're turned up, something's moved through that area. And if there's a lot turned up, depending on the size of, of how big the disturbance areas are, that means you've got a larger creature moving. Unless it's just a squirrel that's just throwing stuff. And that happens too. But squirrels don't leave 15-inch uh, footprints. So um, I found a set of footprints that were kind of caddied behind a tree. Um, like it was using this tree as a position to uh, almost like a safety barrier if that makes sense. So it was like leaning against it and it stood there for a minute. And I'm, I'm fairly certain based off the shape of the tracks and, and the way that they were made that this thing was rocking because it's, those impressions were deeper than all the other impressions I found. And this ground in this area was very, very dense. It was really hard. So whatever it was, was standing there and it was rocking and moving. And then I think that's where the first audio uh, encounter happened was it yelled at him from that position and then he heard it move forward and so he moved back to his car and then it yelled again and I'm assuming when it yelled again was when it was right there at the edge of the vernal pool so he was within at at maximum 25 yards of this thing the entire encounter and uh, we were able to recover the the two tracks that we called the salamander tracks we immediately sent the uh, the evidence and and video and pictures and all that stuff to Cliff and and uh, Jeff to try to get you all some feedback on it and then it wound up coming around to uh, to being on Finding Bigfoot. Thank God that was a great spot you took us to. It really was. Um, it, it's uh, Russ Jones works that area a lot too and uh, and we we both kind of work different areas in the forest over there. Um, it, it it's great. It's such a such a great environment. The the fauna there is so supportive of a large creature. Um, there's so many native edibles and protein that's coming in after uh, after those edibles. I mean, you it's you could go there uh, if you were trained and, and you knew how to survive. You could go to an area like this and and take a whole group of people with you, and you'd be able to thrive, not just survive, but thrive in this environment because you've got access to clean water. You've got access to tons of food year round because a lot of these mushrooms that are growing in this uh, area, they're growing year round. Um, it's it's not just limited because you got winter oysters and such that are that are good edibles and, and plentiful there. Um, so you got food through the winter, and then you got deer and and other wildlife available. Uh, then during the early early spring, when you start getting those forty degree temperature swings, uh, starting to show up again from winter. You know the the salamanders and the frogs. You can you can walk on them like a carpet almost at that time of year. Ooh, I'd like to do that barefoot. Yeah, right. Yeah, that'd be disgusting. <laughs> It'd be like walking on. Well, only if they could support my weight. I wouldn't want to crush the little guys. You know that that'd be sad. Right. But the, seriously, like when I say you could walk on it like a carpet, that's that's not an exaggeration. Um, there's there's 
several nights through the year uh, that you can drive down there and you'll go around a curve. And if you stop your vehicle and walk around to where the vernal pool is, literally eyeballs everywhere. If you turn your flashlight or headlamp on and look at the road, it'll just be covered in in these uh, eye shine from salamanders and frogs. And and you can't walk without crushing them. So uh, some of those areas we've, we're actually trying to petition to uh, kind of raise the road a little bit to allow a, um, a under a subterranean tunnel to go underneath the road to allow access for some of these creatures to not get turned into road to kill. But they're easy, easy to catch. Like I said, when you've got a big carpet of amphibians down on the ground, you can just go down and scoop them up with your hands and eat it, you know? So there's tons of available protein and fat be like gummy worms or something. Um, so uh, the, I remember, and I, I wanted to get clear. I was just thinking about this the other day, actually. I want to get clarification because um, you did a lot of the pre, you helped with the pre-production for that episode quite a bit by lo, by locations and um, sighting reports and things that you knew about the park in general. Um, and you chose that area um, where we did the final drone night investigation, that canyon, um, for a variety of reasons. And um, apparently you went up there, what was it, at the week or the day before? I can't remember. This is why I wanted to ask you. Tell us about that because we're, it's a lot of people look at finding Bigfoot and they say, oh, you, you know, you had to be lying because you had such a success rate, you know, half the time. And other people said, how come you don't get them all the time like so-and-so does? As Well, that's because we're doing it for real. Um, but uh, uh, we had a really good success rate because if you're batting 50% in this game, you're doing really well. Um, and part of the reason is because we had the best intelligence between moneymakers, sighting reports, Bobo's connections, and my stuff that I've collected over the years and the people I've known. We had the best intel on the ground, boots on the ground people that you could possibly ask for in this subject period no other possibilities like we we just had the best i'm, I'm not saying that to brag i'm saying that because it's true and that is what why we can say with uh, you know with honesty and truthfulness that we had such successes we had good people that we relied upon and you're one of those people in this case because you had boots on the ground in that area and that's part of the reason we went to the spot and that's part of the reason we got them that night Tell us what led up to choosing that particular valley for uh, our night investigation. We were out there um, doing doing some pre-production work, like you had mentioned. And uh, I was helping them scout out certain areas where you guys would be able to do call blasting and you'd get the best spread on the audio, um, where you would be able to get good camera angles, things of that nature. And uh, just... Uh, about two months prior to that, I had been out teaching a Boy Scout ecology course. And I had, um, the whole reason we went up there was because I said, guys, I, I really think you should come up this way because um, they had been capping off a well, uh, an old gas well that was up that way. And whatever they were doing was upsetting whatever was in that valley. And uh, the reason that we come to that conclusion is because I'd had the Boy Scouts out. We were doing doing a walkthrough. We had multiple rock clacks and a, uh, a dead tree. Again, it's a dead tree. It could have fallen over on its own. But after the second one, we start questioning that, right? So a, a, a tree got knocked over, and we had a couple rock clacks. Those were really interesting. And at that point, I decided, hey, guys, all right, we're going to go ahead and set up advancing um, further up trail. We're going to go ahead and turn around. There's another pool I'm going to take you to, and we're going to do some some looking around and stuff here. They were okay with that. And then when we got back to the camp, um, and they were doing the campfire time, they had asked me, like, what I I thought it was. Because the adults thought that it was actually, like, a pistol being fired. That's how loud the rock clack was. 
And um, I, I was like, well, I'm going to be fully honest with you guys. I'm a Bigfoot researcher. And um, we've had some reports up here over the years that have come in, but nothing this recent. But, I, you know, we sat and talked Bigfoot for a minute. Well, that's why I wanted to take them out that way to go look and see what angles would work good, what areas would be good to set up certain equipment, et cetera. So uh, as we're going up, we John went with us. Um, so it was me, John, and John, actually, uh, one of the producers there. We we hiked out, um, I think it's five, five and a half miles uh, up and back where we were at, or no, six miles up and back. And we got out, we've, we found some spots cause I took them all the way up to, um, the second, the second area we were in and, and then back down the mountain again. Um, so while we were walking back, we had heard some, some weird noises like mouth clicks and, uh, you know, we we're just trying to, I'm trying to write it all off, you know, trying to look at it like you know, we're out here setting up for a Bigfoot show. Surely we're not getting Bigfoot activity right now. Right. So we're getting these weird mouth clicks. I'm like, ah, that's, that's a squirrel. We're just going to keep going. Ah, that's a chipmunk. We're going to keep going. And then, um, the two Johns actually had a, a visual sighting at that point. And I caught the tail end of it. What I saw was this black, large black object that was standing vertically bolt into the brush and, and up the mountain. And we could hear it too, as it took off, but they actually saw this, the, the figure and they saw the head and the shoulders. And when it turned, they, they observed that portion of, of the action. This thing was watching us and it raised up from behind the brush pile it was in and turned and went up the mountain into the mountain laurels. And, uh, so we sat there, we walked up, tried to find, um, any kind of tracks or sign. And, uh, there, there was, there was disturbance, plenty of disturbance, but there wasn't any like viable footprints that I could pour plastering. Cause trust me, I take after that, uh, incident there in Kanoa, every time I go to Kanoa, I've got at least 10 pounds of plaster in my backpack. So that was, that was two days before we had you guys out there. And, uh, it, it was, the well had been capped off and whatever was out there had been agitated. I believe because of that and had been more active than usual. And, uh, that turned out when John had that, uh, the producer, John had that kind of experience. He was like, we have got to, got to do it here. This is, I've never expected this, you know? And, uh, that's, that's what kind of got you guys in that place, you know? And then Russ, uh, Russ Jones had also had a sighting report had came in, about six weeks prior to having you guys in that area. And it was a, uh, a sighting where the lady had observed a large black bipedal creature kind of go down the mountain across trail and then back down the mountain again. So there had been, you know, some pretty good encounters and reports that had came immediately out of that area. So it just made sense to have you guys come in. That's going to be our best bet to have something because we've got activity right now you know and if we have activity right now and we get you guys in there we stand the best chance of doing what the show is called you know right yeah actually finding one of these things 
So, so that's how that happened. And then, uh, what it just breaks my heart, man. Cause I was listening to that episode. I'm, I sent you a text message immediately. Uh, the episode where you had the guys on that were actually flying the, um, the thermal drone. Yeah. The episode, uh, of Bigfoot and beyond where we had, um, uh, Robert on Robert Evans. Oh man. I, I died inside. <laughs> it hurt me almost, man, knowing that we were that close and we had this thing on thermal and, and I went out the very next day and I don't know if, if Matt or any, cause I told Matt about this, but I don't know if anybody else had told you guys about this. Um, the Creek that this subject stepped across that, uh, that Bobo watched it step across the Creek and kind of move into some brush and that's where it disappeared. That Creek is six feet wide for a very, very long stretch all the way through that little ravine. And it doesn't narrow out until it chokes and goes around the the bend. So this thing took a single six-foot stride across this uh, creek effortlessly. And then the area that it went in to hide was um, full of old-growth, storm-damaged beech trees. So you're talking three-and-a-half, four-foot diameter uh, beach trees that had all been dozed and pushed over into this ravine. And, y- you know, you could just about hide a rhinoceros down in those things if, if you got it in there the right way. Well, that's good. That never made sense to me because it was headed my way. I remember I was up on the slope, uh, about halfway up the slope, um, and it was headed my way. Everybody says, here it comes, here it comes. How many? It can't be that far from me, a couple hundred feet or, you know, a couple hundred yards. And just it was quiet. And, and I mean, I heard it at first. But uh, at some point, I couldn't see anything. No matter what position I took, I couldn't hear anything any longer. The drone lost it. Everybody lost it. Just and it's like, well, well the shoot, drone didn't man. lose it. The drone flew away. Well, that's losing it to me, man. I, I mean, I don't know. I didn't know what was going on, man. I, I was in the dark, all alone, except for the camera and the the sound guy. Yeah, it it was it was really interesting, you know, because we were, we were right there, you know, it was so close and. Um, and, and having that footage would have just been tremendous. Um, just just having that thermal footage would have been tremendous. But yeah, those big beech trees it provided cover, and and they're huge, massive, massive beech trees. And there was about six or eight of them, and they just pushed them all over into that same little ravine. Because uh, if you remember that cutout that you were walking up up on the the higher um, the higher side of that that uh, hillside there you would come to these big kind of bowl shaped clearings and there were two or three of those. One of those clearings is where all those beech trees were and they'd pushed them all down in that Valley. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. It was, I mean, I had, I didn't really see it during the day. I only saw it at night. Um, and we don't use lights or anything. So we did have moon that night though. I do remember, uh, like thinking it was some sort of like logging landing or something that I was on, but I didn't see the piles of logs that I expected. Yeah, they were that's because they were down below you. But you were exact. You were exactly right. You were on a logging landing. They were just uh, pushed. All the logs were pushed just below the rim of that trail. Okay, that makes sense. That makes. I'm glad somebody did a follow up because that's one of the aggravating things about um, being on a TV show like that. Is if something good happens, most likely you're scheduled the next day and you can't go back and take a look. There's nothing you can do about that because that's your job and that's the way it is. So I'm glad that people like you uh, could did actually went out and took a peek. If you remember too, Matt and Renee were having some uh, some auditory experiences while they were there in that little spot as well, coming from up the mountain in the opposite direction. And when I went back there as well, uh, I, I walked up maybe 
two, 300 feet above where they were standing when they were saying they were hearing these auditory responses. And, uh, there was this old uprooted root ball that, that had been there probably got, I mean, it looked like at least 15, 20 years, uh, the, the stage of decay that this thing was in, but it had made a nice big bowl shaped area that was also kind of guarded by the upstanding wad of roots to where, um, somebody twice my size could have hunkered in behind it and not been seen during the daylight hours. Even that's how deep the, the bowl was from, from the big mess of roots that where it pulled up all the earth. And then you had the, the wall of roots there beside it. Did, when those guys saw that one during the day, two days before, did you do a size recreation? Did you get a, a guesstimate on the size? Uh, the guess on the size based off that thing, like where they could, um, where they saw the head and where I saw like the, the shoulders and back when it bolted it, my guess is around six and a half feet with that one as well. Yeah. Cause that thing that I looked at didn't look much bigger than those guys. Yeah, no, it, it, it was, uh, it, and I, I'm assuming that it, that was the same subject. Uh, what we saw that day and what you caught on thermal, I'm assuming was the same subject. Like it, it was about six, six, maybe at best at the absolute tallest, six and a half feet. Sounds right. Sounds like what we saw on therm. I mean, it's been a couple of years now since we filmed that. Have there been other encounters from that same valley since we left? There has been one that I'm aware of. Um, we had a report sent in to us. Uh, it was probably, I think it was November of uh of last year but on january 1st my wife and i went out on a first day hike and it was 19 degrees and we had actually she found a small juvenile uh footprint and a couple others that weren't super clear we took pictures of them but um that was the juvenile footprint that you and Jeff were looking at at uh, Ohio Bigfoot conference this past year that uh, that Jeff really really liked so and that was in that but that was probably another 3 quarters of a mile up beyond where we were okay so the activity still continues then yeah it does this uh, and, and i think it's because of the food i think it's the availability of the food and and the environment there is is right for it and don't they close the park at night? Yes, the park is closed at night. At uh, it's actually they they start towing vehicles if you're there past ten o'clock. But technically, as soon as the sun goes down, the park's closed. So yeah, Canal State Forest is a ninety three hundred acre uh, protected area, and of that ninety three hundred acres, thirteen hundred of it is old growth forest. Well, that's significant. That's there's not a whole lot of old growth on a lot of the East Coast left anymore. No, there's really not. And and the reason this is still here is just because how hard it was to get out. Yes, yeah, right outside of a major city, but yeah, you, you, it does feel a million miles away when you're in there. Yeah, you're uh, you are close to Charleston, West Virginia, when you're there. Um, but but you know it's uh, it's nice and secluded there. It's quiet, and the south side of that park you know once you get outside of charleston and you start hitting the forest there in charleston for the next 70 some miles south it's just forest because you start getting into the old coal fields the abandoned coal fields and southern west virginia and the rugged mountains there with boone county and logan and mingo and all that going down into uh southwest virginia you know so it's it's real rugged terrain and it's all prime bigfoot habitat in my opinion well, my opinion, I think anyone that knows anything about it, so that, that's the same opinion. 
So Joe, um, uh, you you've had a lot of woods experience. You were a, you were trained in the woods as a professional naturalist. You've got a lot of stuff going on. But um, what are you doing right now? Like, where is your main focus um, nowadays? Instead of like what happened in the past. Uh, my main focus now is is working with people through their en- encounters when they report them. But the immediate focus is uh, with Wild and Weird West Virginia is our event that we've got coming up. And I don't know when this is going to air. It might be past it at that point. But we have multiple events that we host and gatherings that we uh, put together. Um, one of them is Wild and Weird Con. Uh, we've also got a podcast that we run called Wild and Weird Radio. And uh, if you guys are interested in listening to any of that, we've got uh, everywhere podcasts can be found. You can find it there. Just look up Wild and Weird Radio. Uh, we're on um, YouTube as well under Wild and Weird West Virginia. And what we do there is we actually will document um, the outings that we take. And we release them in small episodes, but it's also the video hub for the podcast side of things. So a lot of the times on the podcast, you'll hear us talking about stuff and we'll, we'll be talking about a picture uh, that, that we're looking at. And in the video side of things, we'll actually provide you with that picture. And you get to watch us and carry on on camera. So it's, it's, it's really fun. And um, we go out and we present at conferences here uh, in West Virginia and Ohio and Kentucky. Um, and we're really involved with schools. Uh, another immediate thing I've got coming up is um, from today forward uh, until the middle of November, we've got eight different school appearances where we we're actually going into schools and doing Bigfoot talks, you know, and and engaging the the school. Like they they've really um, grabbed a hold of this phenomena and the kids absolutely love it and watching their eyes light up. It's just an absolute blast. And, and being able to get it, be a part of bringing up and, and fostering that younger generation is, is huge for me. I absolutely love it. Um, then a step further than that, we also have workshops that we host, you know, uh, we took a page out of the book of some of the old, you know, Bigfoot roundups that they used to do out on the West coast where you, you wouldn't just have speakers, but you'd have workshops where you were being taught how to do a thing, you know? Like uh, a Bigfoot crime scene. I know that um, that those were set up in the past, essentially where you'd go through and you, you'd look at evidence and you'd learn how to document evidence properly and learn how to record evidence and learn how to operate equipment, uh, things of that nature. And basically what we do is we teach you all day long how to do the thing. And then in the evening, we go do the thing and we do it in one of our research areas. You know, we'll move it around the state. Uh, so that way we can get attendance from places all over. But, um, you know, it, it lets people come do uh, the Bigfoot thing that they want to do, but they don't know how to get started. When and where is your next one of those? Well, the next one of those uh, is actually going to be at Wild and Weird Con. It's a VIP night investigation workshop that we're doing. Um, that's October the 14th. But then we've got two that we're planning immediately uh, for next year. Um, one's going to be in the Monongahela Forest, and that's going to be done in the spring. And then we've got another one that we're going to do back in Canal State Forest in the fall around, you know, this time of year because things start really picking up this time of year for sightings anyway. And uh, I think we have a, a good chance, you know, at least of getting people um, some kind of a experience because the first thing we tell people is we'll get you out here, but it's, we're going Bigfoot. And so don't expect much to happen. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to give you Bigfoot in the real. 
Well, you know, a, a lot of people ask me about um, going out on other people's expeditions, whether it's BFRO trips or stuff like what you, or you're doing or whatever, and they ask me my opinion on them. And I always say, well, don't count on seeing a Sasquatch, but the real value, the real value, in my opinion, of doing these sort of expeditions, any sort of public expeditions, is meeting the people there, meeting people of like mind, and you, you probably uh, resonate well with a couple of them, and you might make a good friend or two, and, and um, you might make a good field partner. Um, so if in, in a situation like this, where you can actually have access directly to you and other um, professional nat- naturalists in various ways, that's invaluable. To have people people um, in your Rolodex, so to speak, is one of the most important things you can do as a Bigfoot researcher because there's n- nobody knows it all. We all rely on other people and other people's opinions and other people's knowledge because nobody can know it all. Um, and that's the real value of this stuff. So I think that's really cool that you're offering these sort of classes and experiences because the experience is so much more than Bigfoot. It's about the people who are out there and learning from them and, and learning you can rely on them as well. Um, and by the way, you listed so many things. You have podcasts and YouTube and there's events and vending things and it's just so much. Um, it seems to me that like your website would be the place to go for everything that you're doing, which is wildandweirdwv.com. Wildandweirdwv.com. That seems to be the central hub of all this stuff. Oh yeah, you can go to uh, go to the website and you uh, you can go everywhere. We actually even created a forum for you to connect to other people as well. That's right there on the website. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, now I know you wild and weird. Those are pretty strong words. And I, we just talked about Bigfoot stuff, which isn't all that weird. I think we should get into the weird stuff, but let's save that for the members section because, as our listeners know, we now have a Patreon account, five bucks a month, and you get extra content every single week. So, uh, Joe, can you stick around a little bit, and we can uh, record some uh, Patreon like membership stuff? With, and let's get a little weird. Um, if you can stick around, we'd really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. And, and remember, uh, thanks for having me on the show, first and foremost. Um, I really appreciate you guys, uh, and, and thanks for thanks for having the conversation with me. This has been an absolute blast. So uh, for all your listeners, remember, stay wild and weird, everybody. All right, we will. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thanks so much, Joe. Sure appreciate it, man. Well, thanks to Joe Purdue from Wild and Weird, West Virginia. And uh, thanks, you all, for listening and Helping us spread the word by hitting like and share. Give us five-star reviews if you can. So we're going to meet back up with Joe in our Patreon account section right now. So until next week, people, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 